So we're going to read together the uh, passage that's going to form the, the content of our sermon in a few moments. It's, it's available on the reverse side of your service sheet, if you want to use that. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 16 to 21. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 to 21. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. Um, if this is your, your first Sunday uh, with us at Foundation, again, I want to w- welcome you along. Uh, we have been working through a series over the last few weeks called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And this is something that we have set out to do uh, following our opening Sunday, which is only just at the beginning of February. So today is actually our one-month anniversary. Ooh. Awesome. Uh, We're still here, thanks be to God. Uh, But we have been working over the last few weeks through the nine marks of the healthy church. And the the, the point with that is that as we start out as a a church, a church plant, we want to make sure that what we're doing uh, is is building, if you like, a healthy church. We want to make sure that what we're doing uh, is honouring to God. It is his way of building the church. And so we've been looking at these nine marks. Um, And so we are week four, or mark number four. And that mark is... Conversion. Conversion. A biblical understanding of conversion is one of the marks of a healthy church. Last week we looked at the gospel. Uh, the week before we looked at biblical theology, this over, overarching pattern uh, that we, or the storyline of the Bible. Uh, the first week we looked at preaching, the importance of preaching from the Bible, what the Bible teaches. Okay? So this week we are looking at conversion. And so we're going to think in uh, these broad categories today, when we think about conversion, number one, I'm going to ask the question, we're going to think about the question, what is conversion? All right. Number two, we're going to look at the question, why do we need it? Number three, how do we do it? How do we be converted? And finally, as we close, we're going to look at the difference it makes. What is it? Why do we need it? How do we do it? And what difference does it make? All right. So conversion, first of all, what is it? What is conversion? What is Christian conversion? Um, we, we, we've chosen one passage to help us understand what conversion is. There's a load that we could have chosen in the Bible. And the way that the New Testament writers put it, uh, uh, they give it different names to, to describe the same thing. And each name, each sort of description gives a slightly different nuance or a different dimension to what the Bible understands as this thing called conversion. 
some Bible passages use the, the terminology of regeneration, which is uh, new life, uh, being born again. Sometimes a phrase you might hear Christians mention. But in verse 17 of our passage today in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, we see that the definition or the, the phrasing that Paul uses here is new creation. See that halfway through verse 17? New creation. And that tells us a lot about what the Bible teaches about conversion, the process of becoming a Christian. It points to this idea that somehow when you become a Christian, you are remade. There's a radical change. It says uh, later on in verse 17, the old has passed away, it has died. Behold, the new has come. Another way we can understand it is going from some form of death to life. Christian conversion. Verse 18 introduces more language. It says that Christ has uh, God through Christ has reconciled us to himself. So not only have we got this sort of new creation from death to life, but we've got this language of reconciliation. Reconciliation is when two warring parties make peace and come back to each other. So not only is Christian conversion about death to life, but it is about being enemies of God and becoming friends of God. It is about being far away from God at one point, and as something happens to your life, you come home as Noah was just singing. The wanderer comes home. And the Bible uses this, and particularly in this passage, to describe conversion. It is this once and for all time event that happens in the life of a believer. It is definitive and it has eternal consequences. That is conversion. Let's just park that uh, for a few minutes in our, in our minds because uh, we're aware, I'm aware anyway, and I think you are too, that, that, that Christianity is not the only religion. It's not the only philosophy of life. It's certainly, uh, uh, I suppose we could say, it's becoming less and less dominant. Uh, we're becoming more and more of a minority. There are other ways of, of seeing the world, other ways of living life, if you like, out there. One of the, one of the, one of the ways, one of the philosophies is uh, Eastern religion. Eastern religion uh, such as Buddhism and Hinduism and particularly uh, New Age philosophy. It's all sort of, uh, I know there's differences, but it's all kind of uh, classed under that branch of Eastern philosophy. Generally speaking, they teach the doctrine of reincarnation. Reincarnation, that is coming back to life again and again and again. That for them, coming back to life is not just a one-off event. It is a continual cycle of death and then rebirth. And the idea being, in general terms, is that the work you do in this life, whether you're good or bad and all the things you do to people, affects how you turn out in the next stage. For better or worse. So you can either go up the ladder a little bit and, and appear as a higher being, or you can go down the ladder and appear as a lower animal. Something like that. You can see how different that is from the Christian view of conversion, this radical, definitive, once-off thing that happens to your life, which sets into orbit the rest of eternity. Eastern philosophy is very different. But you, you may be sitting here thinking to yourself, well, that's, that's all very well, but I'm certainly not a Buddhist, a Hindu. I'm not interested in New Age. I'm, I'm a Western person. Uh, it's all about me. It's all about uh, myself and, and, and how I can uh, conduct my own life. 
I, I make my own goals. I uh, follow my own beliefs. I don't need Christianity or Eastern philosophy. We could say that the philosophy of the West is radical individualism. I'm the boss. I'm the king of my own castle. But yet still in the West, we are committed to continual self-improvement. It's a very different way of understanding it to the East, but yet we are driven to find the best life now. Because in our understanding, in the Western people, this is all it is. And so we are committed to self-improvement, whether it's through our career and climbing the ladder, whether it's through amassing wealth, whether it's through finding significance in, in relationships, romantic relationships. There's many differences, of course, between Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy, but the same kind of idea is at heart. That there is a continual process of salvation with a somewhat uncertain outcome. But Christian conversion differs from both East and West. Christian conversion, as we, we see in the Bible, offers a radical break from the past, a fundamental change that will change your life from the inside out. A transition that is guaranteed, as I said, with eternal implications. So what is Christian conversion? It is just that. This radical, definitive change in your life it affects you now, but it continues to affect you for all eternity. Christian conversion. What is it? We can spend a bit more time now thinking about why we need it. Why do we need it? And I've, I've sort of grouped this answer into two headings uh, for those of you who are into note-taking. There's a theological reason why we need it, and there's an existential reason why we need it. I'm going to explain what I mean as we go on. Why do we need conversion theologically, first of all? Whether you are a follower of Eastern philosophy, whether you are a Western secular person with a sort of individualistic mindset, whether you are a Christian or other types of religions, all religions, all philosophies, by and large, assume the need for improvement or progress or some kind of salvation. Their, their answers, of course, differ widely. But all philosophies state somewhere along the line that life is not as it should be, that there is something more than this, there is something better out there. And we've, we've seen over the last few weeks as we've been looking through the nine marks of a healthy church, looking at Bible theology or biblical theology, the, the Bible as well gives this idea that this life is not as it should be, there is more to life than what we see. And if anything, Christianity goes further in its analysis of the human condition than any other philosophy you are likely to come across. Christianity is, on one hand, far more bleak than other religions and other philosophies, but on the other hand, it is far greater in what it hopes for. If you were with us last week, and particularly the week before, you'll know the big picture of the Bible, the big storyline that Scripture presents us with, and it is this. Out of his love, God created the heavens and the earth and he created us, he created humankind, created in his image. You see, human beings are a part of creation. They're not God. They're not gods in their own right. They're, they're, they're part of creation. And yet, because they are 
bearing God's image. They're image bearers of God. They are therefore different from the rest of creation. That gives human beings huge significance and worth. We see that at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But we also read that sin came into the situation, into that perfect relationship between God and humankind. They rebelled against God's perfect rule and they were cast out of his presence, out of the garden. But that sin that Adam and Eve, our first parents, committed wasn't just their own personal sin, it was passed on like a, like a genetic mutation to the rest of the family and on and on and on, generation after generation. And since then we are by nature, the Bible teaches, sinful. But the Bible gives us a great reason as to why the world is like it is. It doesn't pull any punches. It is, it is, it is devastating. It, it says that the world is like it is as a result of, of sin. And because of our sin, it teaches that we are spiritually, in the eyes of God, spiritually dead. We are liable to his punishment because of the sins that we do and commit. So you can see on the one hand, the Bible is very bleak about the human condition. Because not only does it say that we are sinful and it's come from our first parents and we we do sin because that's by nature what we are, but it goes on to show that we can't do anything about it. We can't get ourselves out of the ditch we're in. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try harder and please God. Now the Bible is very clear. We cannot do anything on our own to make it better before God. So on one hand, it's more bleak than any other philosophy or religion. But secondly, Christianity is so much more hopeful than any other philosophy or religion. Because at the centre of the Christian message is the gospel, it's the good news of, of Jesus. Not only are we worse than we often realise, but the good news of the Christian message is that all the work that needs to be done for you to be made right in God's eyes, for you to receive salvation and life and life eternal, all the work has been done not by you but by someone else. It, it doesn't mean to say that no one can be saved because we're such sinful people. But it just means that you can't save yourself. You're too far gone. Look at verse 18 and 19 in our text. It starts off by saying, all this, all this new creation, Paul says, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world. All this is from God. It's him that's doing the work. See, we're not only worse than we realise but because of the good news of Jesus and what he did for us, he provides all that is required for us to be completely and fully right in God's eyes, loved by him, forgiven, guilt washed away, sins cleansed, hurts healed, all because of what Christ has done. So the first reason we need conversion is because we cannot be right before God on our own, but through Christ we have all things. That's the theological reason, we just can't attain it on our own. But I said there's an existential reason as well. 
an existential reason. You see, it doesn't just happen automatically becoming a Christian or being converted. Uh, We cannot just receive the benefits of, of Christ's work passively. We can't just absorb it like that. Um, there was a, there was a, a phase of, of church history in the 18th century called the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening happened as a, a response to uh, the church, general Christian religion, people thinking that you can be Christian just because you happen to be going to church. You can be Christian just because you happen to participate in certain rituals. Just because you happen to give to the poor, you're, you're, you're right with God. And so the Great Awakening came about in the, in the 18th century as a result of this nominal religion uh, through the preaching of men like George Whitfield and John Wesley. And they showed that it's not enough to simply attend church, do religious things, be a nice person, whether you're religious or not. That is not enough to be converted, to be a real or true Christian. You can't apply the gospel promises to yourself in that situation. But what Whitfield and Wesley and many like them did was preach the importance of what we're reading just now, the the importance of becoming a new creation. The new birth, they called it. It is important for you to personally trust in Christ and who he is and what he's done for you. It's no good just being brought up in a Christian family or, or thinking you're from a Christian nation or doing Christian practices. No, you need personal trust in Christ. That's why Paul writes back in our passage in in verse 20. He's talking about the work that God has done. And then he says to the Corinthians that he's writing to, he says to them, we make our appeal uh, to you, we employ you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We plead with you, be reconciled to God. See, Christ has done the work that you need, that you can't do for yourself. But you have to make a response. You can't just passively receive it. Be reconciled. When you you read the the accounts of the apostles in the book of Acts and you you, you read their their preaching, and they they were preaching the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died and was buried and rose again on the third day, and that changes everything. And when, when people heard that preaching in the early days of the church, most often the question was something like this. What, what can we do? What must we do in response to you telling us the gospel? How can we be saved? And the answer was unanimous, unanimously this. Repent and believe. The apostles were saying, trust that Christ's work was for you. That's what believe is all about. Repent is turning away from your old self, you know, your old way of living without God and and turning to Jesus and and living for him instead. This is what you need, said the apostles, to be converted. Repent and believe. And that's what we need today in the 21st century in Belfast. We need to repent and believe. So we've seen the definition of conversion, that once-in-a-lifetime radical right down to the root transformation that happens that affects us now and for all eternity. We've seen why we need to do it theologically because we cannot earn it ourselves. Why we need to do it existentially because we have to receive it by faith for ourselves personally. 
And third, we can ask the question then, how, how do we actually do that? How do we actually be reconciled? How do we actually com- be converted? You see, Paul uh, is saying, all this is from God. He, he makes this available for you. You can't do it for yourself. You're dead in your sins and transgressions. But Christ has done it all for you. He doesn't just end it there and say, be reconciled and then sign off. He doesn't just end with this call and command and, and stop it. Just make a decision, people. Let's, let's close with prayer. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't make a big tear-jerking emotional appeal. He simply says to the Corinthians, look at Christ. How do we do it? He says, look at Christ. Look down at verse 21. Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. (coughs) Paul is saying, look at Christ. For our sake, he became sin. When we look at the cross, when we read the stories of Jesus dying, suffering, he is in great amounts of suffering, great amounts of pain. But it is not the physical pain That was his worst problem, we could argue, at the time. It was his spiritual pain. Because Jesus Christ was the perfect son of God. He was the perfect man. He was the one, the only one, who lived a perfect human life. And Paul says here, this perfect one, the great son of God, he became sin. He was treated as sinful by his father, it says, for our sake. And so there on the cross as he was suffering and dying, he was dying not for his own sin, but for the sins of his people, for his bride. He was dying for her, the church. And right there it says this great exchange took place. Jesus Christ died in the place of his church, in the place of his people. He did what you could never do. On the Bible's analysis, we as human beings deserve to be abandoned. We deserve to be despised. We deserve to be rejected by God. But on the cross, it was Jesus that was abandoned, Jesus that was despised, Jesus that was rejected because of you. He was carrying your sin and my sin and our sin to the cross. And so Paul says, that is how you be converted when you see that great exchange. When you see what Jesus did for you and the extent that he went for you, then you will willingly give your life in trust to Christ. You will willingly turn yourself around to face him and live for him because of what he's done for you. No true convert to Christ does so grudgingly when they see what Christ has done for them. You are so sinful, the Bible says, that Jesus had to die. But you are so loved that he wanted to die. And Paul says in this passage, the more you look at this, 
The more you see what Christ has done, he says, it will melt your heart. You don't come grudgingly to a saviour like that, but you come willingly. great hymn we're about to sing uh, uh, later on today says this. The hymn writer has been spending time possibly focusing on this verse. We don't know. But he says this. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. These are the words of someone who has seen this great exchange and has willingly come in faith and repentance to Christ. What is conversion? Why do we need it? How do we do it? Let's just spend a few moments then just passing this out. What difference does this make? Maybe you've started to understand the differences that this could make in your life already. The Bible teaches that when you are a new creation, when you are brought from death to life, you have new life in you. And it just stands to reason that living things grow, don't they? You expect living things to grow like a tree bearing fruit. And so if you get this, if you you are converted, if you see what Christ has done and you receive him by faith and you repent and you turn to him and away from your sinful life and you seek to please him, then you will start bearing the fruit of that transformation. People will see it. You will see it in yourself. You can't not grow if you are truly converted to Christ. Yes, fruit comes and goes in seasons. Sometimes you see it more than others, but that forward growth is inevitable. What kind of things do I mean? Well, look, let's just take a few examples here. If you really understand what Christ has done for you, then number one, you will receive levels of peace and comfort to your soul that no other activity, practice or philosophy will bring to you. When you get what Christ has done for you, you will receive a deep peace and inner poise. Whether it's Eastern philosophies of reincarnation or the Western philosophy of this life now and doing all you can, those things will just exhaust your soul. But when you look at Christ and his work on the cross and you realise that it is finished, it is done, you cannot add any more to what he has achieved for you then you simply rest and receive and enjoy that. The relentless drive to progress yourself or save yourself is over. Instead, deep rest and peace comes from knowing the gospel of Christ, taking it into your heart. And the more you look to him and the more you receive that and dwell on that and and chew it over, the deeper the levels of peace that you will get in your life. Peace and comfort. Deep resources for suffering. These are just ideas. These are just suggestions of some of the the life-transforming ways that Christ will grow fruit in your life. Because when you suffer, and we all will, whether it's physical, mental, spiritual, whatever, all three, 
You will see your suffering in new ways, not as a punishment by an angry God for some sin that you did back then. Because Christ has taken the punishment, you will never be punished as a child of God. At the centre of our faith, indeed, is a suffering saviour. And yet there are deep resources available to us in the gospel for our suffering, knowing that Jesus Christ has paid it all. If you want to know more, I can recommend resources uh, for, for that too, about how the gospel helps us in our suffering. Another difference it makes is motivation for good works. Not like Eastern philosophy where we have to earn it to get a better life in the next life. Or Western philosophy where we have to earn it to get a better life now. We work, we do good works of, of, of love and charity to one another and to those outside. Not because it earns us respect or love from God, but out of thankfulness. Because of what he's done for us. There's such freedom in that. Finally, a difference that it makes, and this is really important for us here as a church, is that it makes us, as Paul writes, into ambassadors. You see, you don't just receive this good news and and be transformed and just enjoy that all to yourself. Because you can't. Because of what it is and, and what it does to you, you can't hold it in. You can't keep it to yourself. You have to share that with other people. And that's why we as a church are, are missional in practice. That's where we get this from. What we do is shaped by sharing the good news of the gospel with those outside. How we spend our money, how we spend our time, what sacrifices we make. We are missional in practice. This is just because of what Christ has done. When we see what he's done for us. We want to make that known to the world around us. Is Christ calling you tonight? If he is, then come home. Come home. Put your faith in him. Trust his ability to save you. Repent. Live your life for him. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray just now that you would open our eyes to to see Christ, to see what he did and how this is made available to us. Please, Lord God, would you give us faith? Help us to lay hold of the gospel by faith. Help us as a church to enjoy Christ, to share the good news in what we say and how we love each other visibly and practically. We pray that many more will come to know Christ and become themselves new creations. We pray these things in the name of Jesus who gave it all for us. Amen.